Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 18th, 2016. Try to ease into the week here. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. These are very treacherous times. There are a lot of people who are saying a lot of things about God. None of it can actually be anchored in Scripture. We are literally awash right now in the visible church with false Christs, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. That's right. They don't leave their wolf suit on. No, they got to try to blend in. And generally, a whole lot of people who are making merchandise of Christians, making a, a lot of money, scratching, itching ears, telling people what they want to hear. And worst of all, um, as a result of this, they are deceiving many people and shipwrecking their faith and sending people to hell. That's what's at stake here. So what we do, this is a teaching program. We compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates. There are no apostles of Jesus today, self-appointed apostles, apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to. And we open up our Bibles and we compare. We put things back in context to see if what they're saying squares with what God's Word says. Are they teaching what the Bible really says? Are they teaching biblical, historic, orthodox Christian doctrine? Or are they twisting the scriptures and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach? That's what we do here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. In fact, we've got a lot of ground we got to cover today. Um, a little bit of news. I, you know, the uh, tw- the Together 2016 event that uh, took place over the weekend in Washington D.C., where they hope to fill them all, and where. It was this big sign of unity in Jesus, and even the Pope was going to make an appearance via video. Um, That thing got shut down early. Yeah, there was over 300 folks who uh, were suffering from heat-related illnesses. You know, think heat stroke and things like that, dehydration and 
and uh, all that. And uh, the uh, the National Park Service shut the event down. Too hot, too many people uh, getting ill. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Has nothing to do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. But uh, anyway... So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode. We are going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And we're going to check in with Prophetess Vonda. Prophetess Vonda, she's making sure that everybody knows of the, the about the the word that she received directly from God a year ago, more than a year ago, in June of 2015 regarding Donald Trump. And this is a very specific prophecy. And the best way I can put this is is that uh, with the Republican National Convention upon us, well, now we get to see if Prophetess Vonda really is a prophetess. And I'll explain why, biblically, well, this is oh the testing time. But the thing is, is we can already tell she's a false prophetess because of her false teaching, because of her mishandling of biblical texts. Then we are going to do a money-grubbing televangelist update and uh, listen to Jesse Duplantis as he, well, tries to explain the the answer to the question, why isn't my giving working? And, well, the teaching that he gives and the assumption behind the question is oh so quite fascinating is the best way I can put it. And uh, we'll take a break after that and then we'll do an extended Joyce Meyer update, second half of the uh, first hour, uh, reviewing her message titled, Payday is Coming, Payday is Coming. You'll notice there seems to be a similarity between her and Jesse, and oh boy, is this interesting. A little bit of wisps of true word of faith heresy stuff going on in this uh, sermon message, delivered at Joel Osteen's Lakewood, and uh, and then in hour number two, I mean, it's the summer movie preaching season. We're going to head down to the Summit Church uh, which is it, with, they are located in a suburb of Houston, Texas, and we're going to listen to Ross Feasel's sermon, sermon, sermon on uh, the movie The BFG, um, and uh, and learn how to deal with giants. Yeah, that'll be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and since we're going to be getting with a. Uh, Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. That requires us to do this. Oh. Hallelujah. Get up right now. Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So we're heading over to Vonda, the nagging, the nagging prophetess's um, YouTube channel. 
And uh, we're going to be listening to two parts of two videos, one from June 28th of this year, and cross-reference that with a video that she officially published on August 17th of 2015, but claims was recorded on June 14th of 2015. And uh, we'll explain how it's, well, definitive showtime for the nagging prophetess herself, who calls herself God's girl. Um, Here is Vonda, well, to explain. Many of you know that, um, or you may not know, but maybe you will know, um, God gave me the awesome honor to prophesy uh, last June the 8th or the 9th, it was before my birthday, uh, he showed me who was going to be the Republican nominee. And uh, that has been released uh, well over a year ago. You can go back on my page and see that prophecy. And um, it's going to be Jeb Bush. Donald Trump will be trashed. And this isn't new news today. I'm not prophesying it for the first time. I prophesied that last year. All right. The RNC convention, you know, Republican National Convention is upon us. And now is the time. You know, hey, so we fully expect coming out of the Republican National Convention, Trump is trashed, and Jeb Bush is the Republican nominee. ...that Donald Trump would be a throwaway, and so um, I have these recordings and their dates published, documented on YouTube, so uh, it's not just, oh, I'm seeing it now and I'm proclaiming it now. No, this has been proclaimed for well over, uh, into last year, so 2015. So, um... The Holy Spirit is here to let you know, not only to confirm that Jeb Bush is going to be the Republican nominee and his name will be on that ballot, he will be the Republican nominee of the 2016 scheduled elections. Um, Many people believe that the elections will be canceled or suspended. I happen to believe that as well. Nevertheless, whenever the elections do happen, and does go through, his name will be on that ballot. But what the scoop is today is, who's going to be his vice president? Who is it? Who's it? Yeah, well, he's already announced that. So we're going to go back in time now. This is from, uh, officially published on August 17th of 2015. Here's Vonda claiming to be uh, revealing a direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit. Here we go. You are watching Heart Hope. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me. Um, I have an announcement to make today about um, politics. Um, Let's see. I guess when I, about four years ago, started uh, operating in the prophetic office on Heart Hope, I started getting a little bit more inquisitive about um, the people that were running our country and started seeking God more about things like that. Well, uh, it was kind of early this year. Right now I'm coming to you July the 14th at 3 o'clock or so in the afternoon. Um, The vision I'm going to share with you, I had um, probably about a month and a half ago. I'll tell you why I had the vision. I want to lay a little foundation before I share the vision with you. Um, I got some type of a comment or something. Well, for those of you who don't know, in 2012, God showed me that Barack um, um, Obama, Barack Hussein Obama would win the 2012 election over Mitt Romney, and he did. So I've had people, you know, ask me about this um, 
new election in 2016 that's going to be coming up. And anyway, it's way, way ahead of time because we're only in July of 2015, uh, July the 14th at the time of this video. But I wanted to go ahead and release it because I didn't want people just to say that, oh, you're just saying what you're saying because you see what's going on in the times, you know. No, um, the reason why God gave me this vision was because it was on my heart. Um, uh, some things, some political things. Somebody sent me a comment and they said to me, um, because they knew that God had allowed me to share that Barack Obama would, would win the re-election in 2012. And they asked me, they said, I'm really upset. You know, some man or woman of God said that Jeb Bush was going to be the next president of the United States. And um, they said, what do you say, Vonda? And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I don't know. I haven't even, who's Jeb Bush? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it ended with the second George. <laughs> I had no idea how many people are in their family and or how many people in their family are even in politics. You know, I'm not that deep into it. So um, I don't know if I even answered the person or not, but it was on my heart. Who's, who's Jeb Bush? I don't even know what he looks like. So the question was out there and... I guess over the weeks or months, um, the person asked me, maybe six months ago, I you know, came across my mind or meditated on it. And sometimes God will talk to me as I'm thinking about something and he'll answer me just something about I'm wondering about. So um, I never asked God if Jeb Bush would be the next president. I was just wondering if what that guy said was true. Now, I'm not here to tell you who the next president of the United States is. God has not revealed that to me. When he does, if he gives me permission to make uh, a prophetic uh, prediction from the Holy Spirit and release that, uh, I will. But um, right now, he has not given me that revelation. But I was... Um, about a month and a half ago, I did receive a vision from him as I was pondering that week about what that person said. So at this time that God gave me the vision, I still didn't know what Jeb Bush looked like. I never looked it up. I really didn't, you know, make it a mission or anything like that. So God gives me this vision of George Bush, St. Jr. And I see him in a vision and he steps a, makes a big step forward and and like gets on his like there's a mark on the floor and and he and he and he takes his place on that mark and I see Barbara Bush come up beside him and 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 they're they're on the mark and they're taking their place and they're set to go so I said God well I know George Bush Jr. Um, or the second George uh, George Bush can't win the election again. I mean, he, he, he was reelected two years in a row, so you can't be talking about him. Um, they've already had their time. Are you, are you saying, I said to God, are you saying George Bush is symbolic for Jeb Bush? Because I don't know what Jeb Bush even looks like. So God had to use George Bush. So God was using George Bush to represent Jeb Bush because I didn't know what Jeb Bush looked like. So, um, he's in the vision, he's on his mark and he's, uh, ready to go. I don't believe the mark is him being president. Um, God could reveal that he will be later. 
I don't know. I believe that God is showing me that he's going to win the Republican nomination and he's going to be, he's going to take that place and he's going to be ready to go against um, the Democratic. And I believe Barbara Bush was symbolic for Jeb Bush's wife. I know um, <laughs> Jeb Bush's wife is supposedly Spanish or Mexican or um, Hispanic, but um, it's not saying that George Bush and Barbara Bush are going to run again <laughs> or anything like that. God's just using them to be symbolic of another. Right. Yeah. God's using them to be symbolic. So there's Vonda, the nagging prophetess uh, from last year. And she said that he, Jeb Bush, was going to win the Republican nomination. And he didn't. So now she's circling back and saying that he's going to be on the ticket. Right, okay. Well, the Republican National Convention is this week. And I don't see any indicators that Jeb Bush is going to be stepping in as the nominee for the Republican Party. So why does this all matter? Well, Vonda claims to be receiving direct revelation from God. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Here's what scripture says, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or you can say, or her, who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now, contrary to what uh, you know, a lot of the uh, lunatic fringe in the signs and wonders movement say, Scripture is extremely clear. Anyone claiming to speak directly from the Lord, I've got a word from the Lord, and it's direct revelation, not something that's actually in the written word of God. If what that person say says is going to take place doesn't take place, that person is a false prophet. And under the old theocracy of uh, ancient Israel, the, uh, the the penalty for being a false prophet was death. Now, the death penalty is not being imposed, or nor am I advocating it, for people in the Christian church. However, the way I think the right way to look at this is when somebody is found to be a totally bogus false prophet, their ministry needs to die. Yeah, and what I mean by that is people need to no longer listen to them, no longer support them, call them to repentance, and ask them to basically say, you need to be forgiven, you need to repent of your false prophecy, you being a, you know claiming to be a prophet and hearing from God when you were not, and you need to repent and be forgiven, and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance by never, ever again claim publicly to be a teacher in the church, or to be somebody who's hearing directly from God. I think that would be the right punishment. 
uh, in a situation like this. But anyway, so we've already established, based upon the fact that the video she referenced just a couple weeks ago, she claimed that God told her that Jeb Bush would be would win the Republican, uh, you know, party nomination. He didn't. Trump has won it. So now she's backpedaling and kind of changing. Oh, he Jeb Bush is going to be on the ticket. No, he's not. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that Jeb Bush is going to be on the ticket. And uh, Vonda here is well a false prophet, a false teacher. She is one of those whom Jesus warned us about. Specifically, read the Olivet Discourse about the treachery and deceit in the last days. Prophetess Vonda is not a prophetess. She may be a prophetess with, if you spell it with an F, but she's not a prophetess and she does not speak for God the Holy Spirit. Nobody should support her financially Nobody should listen to her ravings, which are just the imaginations of her own mind, or worse, you know, you know, the thoughts and teachings of the demonic. Yeah, but she's, in the truest sense of the word, a false prophetess. Moving along. I've got ninety. Yeah, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Forty thousand French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. Money, 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 money. Nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. That's right. We're heading over to uh, the so-called ministry of Jesse Duplantis as he explains to us how, uh, well, well, the answer to the question, why isn't my giving working? I mean, there I am giving really good money. I mean, hard-earned money to Jesse Duplantis' ministry, sowing a seed, sending in my tithe, and it just, well, it's not working. He promised me health. He promised me wealth. He promised me prosperity and blessing. And there's the problem. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, head over to the Voice of the Covenant uh, television program with Jesse Duplantis as he tries to explain that thorny, vexing question, why is it my giving working? Here we go. Turning to Malachi chapter 3. There are four types of giving in the Bible. Most people know them all, but get them all mixed up. And they change the way things are supposed to function. There is the tithe. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to teach this. And I'm going to try to teach it slow. There is the tithe. There is the first fruits. There is the alms. And there is the seed. Four types of giving in the Bible. Three of them go to God. One of them goes to man. Title of my sermon today, 
is why isn't my giving working? Now, I'm going to note this uh, here. Yeah, I'll put this right at this point. The command to tithe is not given to Christians. No, it's not. The tithe is an old covenant, mosaic covenant command. You can think of it as a national tax imposed on ancient Israeli citizens for the upkeep of the temple and for the payment of services to the tribe of Levi for their priestly duties. That's what it was for. Yeah, when you when church and state are not separated, yeah, the state has to take care of the church, and that's what was happening in ancient Israel. And the new covenant does not have a command to tithe. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant's command to tithe. If somebody would like to tithe as a Christian, they are more than welcome to. If somebody is financially strapped as a Christian and is incapable of giving a tithe, well, then they are not condemned. No way, Jose. So Malachi chapter 3 is speaking to the children of Israel, Old Covenant, and speaking about the fact that they are not doing what the Mosaic Covenant requires them to do as citizens of ancient Israel. Christians under the New Covenant, well, here's the New Covenant command, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, that's verse 7, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's able to make all grace abound, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's right. So the Christian is, well, not to give under compulsion. Under the Mosaic Covenant, oh, you gave under compulsion. Christian is not. Each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, but, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. So the idea is this. God wills that your pastors earn a living from their preaching and teaching of God's word and their proclamation of the gospel and caring for Christ's sheep. Scripture is very clear on this that the one who is teaching and the word and you know administering the Lord's Supper, they are to be supported. They are to make their living. Therefore, it is God's will for a church, when they call a pastor, to pay their pastor so that he can live. Uh-huh. And so how much then each person gives when the offering plate or the bucket or the basket or whatever you all use you know, comes to the congregation? How much each one gives, that's up to them. That's up to them. However much of the burden we each share in making it so our pastors can eat, have a home, feed their children, clothe their family, uh, take care of their braces, their education, and all their clothing and needs and things like that, that's up to a congregation to work that all out. But God wills for a congregation to support their pastor in the ministry. So how much you give, though? No, there is no specific amount. You want to give 10%? You can. You want to give 20%. You are free to do so. You want to give 5%. Or maybe you're in a situation where you are so financially strapped, the only thing that you can afford to give is a $20 bill. God does not despise that, nor does he condemn you for that. 
So for uh, somebody like Jesse Duplantis to go to Malachi chapter 3, Old Covenant, ignore the historical context, ignore who it is written to, ignore all of that and somehow make it look like, well, this applies to Christians. When it doesn't, well, shows you who his duplicity. Notice the play on words. Now, we're up on our first break. We'll uh, do a little more Jesse Duplantis on the other end of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. A little bit more Jesse Duplantis, then a very long Joyce Meyer segment. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying, if I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? 
you're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Christians in the New Covenant are no longer under the Old Covenant command to tithe. And that would be a good freeing thing for you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And we do not, under any circumstances, believe that if you don't support us, that God's going to somehow send the destroyer to mess up your finances and, and cause your car to break down and all that kind of nonsense. No, no, no. It's real simple. If you find fighting for the faith to be beneficial, a good teaching tool for you, something that is helping to open your eyes to what Scripture really does say and teach, well, then support us because we literally can't keep doing what we're doing without your help. So this is a partnership. And if you'd like to partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. There's four uh, ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey, and that's $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at twenty four ninety five a month. 
From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. And everybody who joins our crew, we will send you out a piratechristian.com bumper sticker as well as one of our die-cut Cairo flag uh, stickers as well. So join our crew and you'll get a couple of perks. You know, we're we're trying to sweeten the pot a little bit. (laughs) Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, let's get back to Jesse Duplantis as he's trying to answer that really thorny question, why isn't my giving working? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Why isn't that? Well, I'm going to get to that, but I got to first build this foundation. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it says, will a man rob God? I'd like to answer that. Yes. Because he figured God ain't coming to the house to arrest him. But remember this, that God always lets you make the choice. He has the power to arrest you. But he lets you make the choice. Will a man rob God? Yes, you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? He says, in tithe and offerings. Now watch this. You are cursed with a curse. That's pretty strong. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So he wasn't talking to one person. The whole nation included the preachers. And the priest and anybody working in ministry of that day. Then he gives us an instruction. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. That there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now, it saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven. Pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Now they were an agricultural community. And he, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed or empowered to prosper, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, what's the motivation for tithing? Write this down. Tithing is the way for recession or depression to bypass you. Tithing is the way... For recession or depression to bypass you. What are you talking about? By the way, again, New Covenant Christians, we're under the New Covenant. No command to tithe. Nope, God doesn't want you giving under compulsion. Why? Because he says, bring all the tithe inside the men, meet in mine house. Poo now he says, all the host will not open up the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing. There shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will open up the windows of heaven. As long as the windows of heaven are open... To you, I don't care what recession is or depression is, it bypasses you. I Yeah, uh, ancient Israel was an agrarian society, not a capitalistic society. What's this talk about depression and recession? That's anachronistic. You're taking a modern-day phenomena and projecting it back thousands of years into ancient Israel? Yeah, I don't think so. Proof that that exists. Look at me. When in the recession, uh, they call it the Great Recession. 
I wasn't born to the Great Depression, but in the Great Recession, I was not affected at all. Yeah, the reason for that's quite simple, Jesse. You are sitting at the very top of a religious Ponzi scheme. Yeah, you're a word of faith heretic telling people to sow seeds, you know, by sending you money. And you're sitting there going, look, this works. I, I'm totally recession proof. Uh-huh. Well, that just tells me that being a false teacher and scratching itching ears and teaching the prosperity heresy, well, is uh, quite lucrative. So lucrative that it makes you recession proof. So notice the person he's pointing to, hey, this really works. Look at me. Of course it works for you, Jesse. You're the one benefiting. In fact, I was blessed. I did that because it connected me. My tithe connected me, and it caused me to bypass recession. No, it was your false teaching and your teaching of the prosperity heresy that did that. Now, I was not born in the Great Depression. I may look like I was, but I'm not. That's way, that's too far back there. That's in the, oh, 29 to 34, 35. But Brother Kenneth Copeland's father and mother. Kenneth Copeland, word of faith, prosperity, heretic. Now we're, re- we're talking about his parents, apparently. A.W. Copeland and Vanetta Copeland, on their marriage day, put tithing in their marriage vows. Now, that man's now in heaven, so is Sister Vanetta Copeland. Now, this is the straight words from the lips of Brother Kenneth Copeland. They just really blessed me. And they were in the Great Depression, all right? And yet, because they refused to break that covenant, Brother A.W. Copeland never went 24 hours without a job. Wow. And uh, How do you know that for sure, that it was because... He tied that he never went 24 hours without a job. There were plenty of people who tithed during and before the Great Depression who lost their jobs. Good paying job. So that open-winded heaven made him bypass the Great Depression. And he went home to be with the Lord, taking care of himself, had his own money and everything, and left money for his family. That's what the tithe does. No, that's just you storytelling. He's sitting here saying, oh, that's what the tithe does. No, that's a story that he's telling. Yeah, He's telling, oh, this works. I know this works. Says, Look at me, I'm bulletproof financially. And now we're going to go back and we're going to talk about K- Kenneth Copeland's parents. See, they... Yeah, it was because they tithe that he never went without a job in the Great Depression. Like I said, there are plenty of people who tithe throughout the Great Depression, before the Great Depression, and they lost their jobs and ended up waiting in line in a soup kitchen. It makes you bypass recession and depression. The Bible doesn't teach this. You're twisting God's word. Oh, that's good. Write this down. Tithing holds God to his promise to rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He said, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Tithing holds God this promise to rebuke the devourer. What devourer? Well, the devourer that's trying to make your car break down. 
You wash. Oh man, there's a devourer running around your neighborhood, folks. Find him. Find him. And whatever you do, stay away from him. He wants to destroy your car. Machine breakdown. Uh, your air condition. Your house going down. Uh, anything that he can do to make you spend money that you don't want to spend. In other words, things that come up when you least expect it. You know what I'm talking about. Right. The reason why things are breaking down in your life is because you're not tithing to Jesse Duplantis. So I have and I have I'm proof of that in my first house or this house when I moved here. Now, again, who I'm proof of this that I know this works again. He's at the top of the pyramid in the Ponzi scheme. I mean, the air conditioner man said I would go slap broke. Wait, I can't believe how long your air conditioning unit lasted. I said, well, I'm a tithe and he kind of freaked out over that. I said that what it is, God rebuked the devourer for my sake. Right, yeah. So apparently the air conditioner guy, I mean, he keeps coming by Jesse Duplantis' house going, is it time to repair your, your air conditioner yet? Nope. Nope, not time to repair my air conditioner yet. How can that be? How? I don't understand. I mean, I should be maintenancing that thing by now. Oh, I'm a tither. Oh, okay. Well, I'll come back in a year. Is it time to, to, to service? Nope, it's acting just fine. How can that be? Air conditioners don't last this long. Yeah, this is a dubious story, is it not? So when people lost money, Jesse made money. Yeah, that's because, again, you're fleecing the flock of God. You're teaching for shameful gain the things that ought not to be taught. Why? Not that I was better than them, but I was connected. No, it's not that I'm better than them. Watch what he says next. To the blessing... So I bypassed that. And that Malachi 310 and 3:11 holds God to that promise. That the devourer wouldn't touch anything I have. You see, I'd rather have 90% be blessed of my money than 100% of it be cursed. Yo, that, that sounds so pious. It sounds so biblical, but it's based upon a false teaching that isn't paying attention to who is being spoken to? He said, you're a curse. I'd rather have 90% be blessed than to have 100% be cursed. Well, I can't afford that. Well, you're going to get there. That's why you're here. That's why we're trying to help you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jesse just wants to help you. He, 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 you know, he just wants to help you, man. First thing, you've limited yourself of what you can afford. You didn't have to ask God about that. He ain't interested in what you can afford. It's what he affords. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Every- Jesse's only halfway through this fleecing doctrine, so he's got to do a little bit more work. So he's returned back to uh, his studio to explain a little bit more for us. The thing you're learning right now has been proven in my life. and you're- Right, proven. See, it's proof. It, it works in his life. He's the false teacher. Right, uh-huh. What? I'm on a mission to see this works for you, too. Oh, no, you're not. You're on a mission to make sure the dollars in my wallet end up in your bank account. Think about that. Look, God wants you and I to live under the blessing. Whether anybody believes that or not, he, that's what he wants. Now, Malachi 3 tells us how. What is that? The tithe. But remember, God always gives us a choice. Our motivation for tithing is simply one word, obedience. See, when you obey, the Bible says it's better to obey than the sacrifice. The reason why I tithe, people talk about the law. What tithing was instituted before the law. I'm not going to get into that theological debate because it's. Yeah, I'm not going to get in that theological debate. 
Um, yeah, that it, it is all about theology, is it not? Again, this is not a new covenant command. Not a debate. All it is is a debate. It never comes up with an answer. And when you understand something, listen. No, I- no, it always comes up with a biblical answer that it's contradictory to what it is you're teaching. Know what I'm talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been in the ministry. For, I've been preaching 40 years. I've been in full-time ministry 38 years. Now, yeah, see, he, he said that, 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 there you go. That's why you should believe it. He's been in full-time ministry for that long. So he's, he, he automatically wins the theological debate. Uh-huh. Listen to him when I say, come a little closer to me. Watch this. I have never had a financial deficit. I know because you're a false prosperity preacher. That's unheard of. Because I'm better than you are? Because I got more faith than you? No, because you're a false teacher. You're scratching, itching ears. Oh, that doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with my obedience. I I don't think I... (laughs) Yeah, he just... Is it because I'm better than you? No, it's just that I'm more obedient than you are. In other words, I'm better than you. Uh huh. Have any more faith than anybody watching me today? But I might have a little more obedience. Tithing to me is simply obedience. I just obey. All I do is give God His money. You know. Uh huh. Right. I think you get the point. Um. Yeah. He's um. He, he's not better than all of us. He's just more obedient than we are. No, he's not obedient at all. He is literally disobeying God. By teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought, they ought, that ought not to be taught, this is a royal fleecing. Moving along, yeah, time for a Joyce Meyer update. You got to accentuate to positive elim. Mine ain't the negative and latch on. To the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between You got to spread joy up to the maximum Bring gloom down to the minimum Have faith or pandemonium Liable to walk upon the sea Yeah, that's right. You got to accentuate the... (laughs) The positive, eliminate thy negative. Anyway, uh, we're going to be heading over to Joyce Meyer's ministry as she, I, I just can't make this up. I mean, it's absolutely just such a clear example of, you know, literally scratching itching ears. The name of the message is Payday is Coming. Payday is Coming, and I'm sure it is, just not for you, but for her. I mean, she's another one of these word of faith, po- prosperity teachers. And in this message, she is literally going to be teaching just rank, uh, well, word of faith stuff. It's in there in spades. But this is going to be an extended uh, Joyce Meyer update because I want to show you that this is all based upon a twisting of God's word. She's going to twist God's word, the story of Jacob. If somehow proving that this is what, you know, that, that this principle that she's teaching is really what the Bible teaches. But it's not, because she's totally missed the whole point of the story of Jacob. Here is Joyce Meyer. Well, I want to do a little message tonight called Payday is Coming. Payday is Coming. Now, you know, if you got a job, you get excited about payday. If you don't have a job, or if you have one, you don't ever bother to go work then payday's not too exciting. Matter of fact, you get tired of hearing people talk about their payday when you're not having one. Well, you know, every Christian has a job. 
If you're a Christian, you have a job. And I'm not talking about the place where you go to work every day and get your paycheck from. I'm talking about we work for God. Whether you're in full-time ministry or not, we work for God. And every day we need to get up and go out in the world and go to work for God to glorify his name by how we talk to people, how we treat people, how we behave, our attitudes, our words, and all those different things. And any time that we do labor for the Lord, the Bible says that our labor will never be in vain and that there will always be a reward because God is the rewarder, capital T, capital R, the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do unto others as you wish it would be done unto you. I think that's one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. And I like... All right, so you're going to notice here, all of this is based upon law, 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 not proper understanding of law and gospel. And understand this, the word of faith heresy, I think it could be best described as a form of karma. Yeah, it's a form of karma teaching. We continue. Scriptures like this. I like this sowing and reaping principle. You know why I like it? Because it gives me a little measure of control over my life. Uh, what? Okay, so she's really a fan of the sowing and reaping principle that she's um, falsely teaching here because she believes it gives her a, a form of control over her life. What on earth is she talking about? And I happen to like control. Oh, I, I bet you do, Joyce. If you don't believe me, ask Dave. <laughs> Amen? And uh, it, it, I think it's cool to realize that even though we know God's in charge of everything, that he's kind of laid out this system that says, here, whatever you want, just give some of it away, and you'll get it back. Um, What? So whatever you want, just give some of it away and you'll get whatever you want? Where is that taught in the Bible? But see, sometimes we're getting stuff back we don't like. And we don't always connect it to a seed that we have sown. When somebody... Oh, see, there it is. Okay. <laughs> sometimes we're getting negative results in our life and we fail to actually see that it's connected to a seed that we've sown huh that's the name it and claim it heresy uh-huh you, you know you, it's called positive confession you positively confess you sow the seed of your word and your faith out into the atmosphere and then god responds by, you know, giving you positive results. But if you say negative words, negative things will happen to you. See, the reason why you got that cancer diagnosis is because you spoke negative words. Uh-huh. She that I mean this is full blown. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, word of faith, heresy. Is gossiping about you? Are they sowing? Or are you reaping? Come on, that's not hard. <laughs> are you sowing? Are they sowing? Or are you reaping? 
Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, Christians always talk about, and the Bible talks about the flesh and the spirit. We are spirits, but we do have a flesh. And we're supposed to keep it under with the help of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. And that means that even though we have a flesh, we are to walk in the spirit. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So all day long, every day, all throughout our lives, we're making choices. We're making choices. Are we going to follow the flesh? Or are we going to follow the spirit? Now, here's something interesting that I've learned about the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is a gambler. The flesh says, I'm going to compromise and do the wrong thing and hope I'll get by with it. I'm going to eat this box of chocolate and hope I don't gain any weight. Matter of fact, I think I'll pray that I don't gain any weight, depending on how spiritual I am, of course. You know. Sometimes if you're spiritual enough, you think you can pray away everything. I'm going to spend more money than I make and hope I'll get a financial miracle from God. And so the flesh will gamble. It will do the wrong thing, hoping that it's going to get by with it. But now the spirit is an investor. When you make What text is she preaching from again? She's making all of these assertions. Assertion after assertion after assertion. Every assertion contains some doctrine. It's a teaching. But is it a biblical doctrine? Not at all. We're not hearing what the Bible teaches at all. Investments, that means that you pay the price up front and you don't always know exactly how long it's going to take for that interest to kick in and those dividends to start coming in. But you're willing to make that sacrifice up front for the reward that you believe will be attached to it later on. And so I just want to throw it out for everybody's thinking, in general, across the board in your life, do you tend to be a gambler or an investor? And I'm not talking about going to the gambling boat and playing slot machines. I'm talking about, do you, do you take chances? Do you compromise? You know what a compromise is? We don't really realize how dangerous compromises are. But now, what you don't realize is just how dangerous this teaching is. Do you think there is a single person listening to the sound of her voice that isn't a sinner, that is not guilty of sinning, literally disobeying God and knowing that they've sinned? You see, this, this is fascinating here because she's preaching the law, but the primary purpose of the law, according to Romans chapter 3, is to show us our sin. And so none of us is righteous. No, not one. So she's preaching in such a way that everybody she's talking to is going to go, oh, man, she's talking about me, and not in a positive way, in a negative way. Compromise only means to go just a little bit below what you know to be right. It doesn't even have to be a lot. It's As if somehow she goes day after day after day after day without ever sinning. Isn't that weird? She doesn't. She's lying compromise if we go just a little bit below what we know to be right. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. So I'm pretty excited about 
this scripture in Matthew 7, 12. So then whatever you desire that others would do to and for you, even so do also to and for them. This is the golden rule, right, and it's law, right. The law shows us our sin and shows us what a good work is. Doesn't give you the power to obey it. This is, sums up, the law and the prophets. See, I love that to think that if I want more friends, all I got to do is be more friendly. <laughs> if I need a financial increase, all I got to do is give a little more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wow, that's quite the stretch. Yeah, the golden rule doesn't teach you how to get more gold. That's not what Jesus was saying. There's the twist. I like thinking that I can do something about my situations and my problems. I mean, I love praying. See, you want to you wanna get more money? You just need to give money to Joyce Meyer, and God will give you a lot. But, you know, we're partners with God, and we can't just pray and him do everything while we sit back and do nothing. Matter of fact, I'm finding out more and more and more when I pray, God gives me something to do. Amen? When I pray, I prayed for energy the beginning of 2015. I wrote it in my journal. Notice, who's the person she's referencing as proof that all of this is true? Herself. Uh-huh. God, I need more energy. And you know what he gave me? A five-mile walk every day. Well, I've got energy. It is just bubbling out all over me. But so often we just want to pray for God to do it all while we do nothing. But that's not the way it works. He says, you will reap according to what you sow. Now, you know, everybody's happy about that if we're looking at the positive side of the message. But there's also the other side that we don't care too much to look, about, look at. And that's like, if I am really hateful to people and mean to them and can't be trusted with their secrets and I'm not kind to people, here's what I'm going to get. Nobody's going to like me. All right, so there's the setup. She's now beginning to set up her twisting, and I mean this, absolute twisting of the story of Jacob and Esau. You see, if you treat people badly, well, you know what's going to end up happening. You're going to be treated badly in return. And see, that's the setup, okay? So apparently now the story of Jacob, which she's going to get to momentarily, it is a prime example in the Bible of, well, how the golden rule boomerangs on you negatively. You treat someone poorly, and then you know, the boomerang comes around and slaps you upside the head. Yeah, it's karma. If I am in a marriage and I'm manipulative and controlling and get mad every time I don't get my way and things go sour in my marriage, maybe I had a little something to do with it. Well, you guys are really quiet. I don't... Yeah, that's because you're preaching really heavy law and you're convicting them of their sin. That's what the law of God does. Let's look at Jacob the trickster. Mm, yeah, already the setup is incorrect. It's absolutely incorrect. Genesis 27. Now, I'm going to have to kind of skip around in here because it's, it involves about 36 verses and we don't have time for, 
for all that, but you'll... Yeah, well, that's weird. 36 whole verses. You don't have time for that. Yeah, it's just, she's going to skip around. And her excuse for that is, well, we just don't have a time. We don't have time to... 36 whole verses. That's a lot of verses, you know. Uh-huh. The reason she's going to skip around is so that she doesn't actually teach what the text says. This She is holding up the story of Jacob as the ultimate example of, well, this is what happens when you do unto others. You end up having it done unto you. This is an example of you know, a guy who you know, treated people badly, and as a result of it, he ended up being treated badly himself. That's not what the story of Jacob is about at all. You'll get this real quick. How many of you know the story of Jacob? Okay. How many of you don't, but you want to learn it? Okay, good. All right. Beginning in verse uh, 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his elder son and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, See here now, I'm old and I don't know when I'm going to die. So now I pray that you will take your weapons, your arrows and a quiver and your bow and go out into the open country and hunt game for me and prepare the appetizing meat such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat of it preparatory to giving you my blessing as my firstborn before I die. Now, we don't know that much about this today, but the blessing of the firstborn in the Old Covenant was so extremely precious and important to them. Yeah, it's a little bit more than just some kind of magical blessing. We're talking about the blessing that's coming down through the Messianic line, uh, from Messianic father Abraham to Messianic father Isaac to Messianic father... Yeah, this is about, well, the Messiah and the, the whole world being blessed through the seed of Abraham. This isn't just some ordinary blessing. It's a messianic blessing, a blessing pointing to the one who was promised in the Garden of Eden. Now, here's the context that, um, well, she missed. There's an important piece of context that everybody's got to get before they can really understand what's going on in Genesis 27. And it's found in Genesis 25, starting at verse 19. These are the generations of Itzhak, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Itzhak, and Itzhak was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Itzhak prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Mm -hmm. And so here we've got an idea of what's going on. Who's going to be the one in the Messianic line? It's not the older one. It's the younger one. God has rejected the older one as being in the line of the Messiah. He has chosen the younger one instead to, well, to be in his place. And so here we've got an interesting um, story that's based upon the fact that one of them is, is to, well, 
be in the in the line of the Messiah and have that blessing and that blessing carry on and God has chosen Jacob not Esau. Genesis 25:29 tells us a little bit about the character of Esau. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, "Let me eat some of the red stew for I'm exhausted." Jacob said, "Sell me your birthright right now." And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So keep this in mind, okay? Not only do we have a clear word from God that the the older is going to serve the younger, it's the younger who's going to be in the messianic line, But here we see that Esau sold his birthright. He sold it for a bowl of stew. What a foolish and absolutely ridiculous young fellow this man was. Okay, so before we even get into Genesis 27, now the question is, who is acting according to the word of God? The word of God that said that the older will serve the younger. It's not... Isaac or Itzhak, it's Rachel, his mother, who is acting in accordance with the word of God. She's acting in faith to the word of God as revealed to her. Itzhak, Isaac, is acting contrary to it. And of course, Joyce Meyer isn't going to tell you that because she thinks this is a story about karma. It's about, well, this is what happens when you treat people badly. No, it's not. This is a story about um, Isaac rejecting and acting contrary to what God specifically said. It was a prayer of blessing that the father would pray over the eldest son, and that meant that he was going to be blessed and prosper. He was going to get a double portion of the inheritance. And this thing was so strong, it was so mighty, so powerful, that once it was prayed, it could never be taken back. Well, Esau was the elder son, but he had a brother named Jacob. And you know, when they came out of the the womb, because they were twins, Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. So I like to kind of think that he was kind of always trying to get ahead of him. You know, it's weird because you forget the fact that God himself specifically said that the older will serve the younger. Despite the fact that the law of the land basically says the older gets the double blessing. God is saying, -uh, no, I've chosen Jacob. And Rebecca, the mother of the boys, favored Jacob. So when she heard her husband tell Esau to go get prepared for the prayer of the blessing of the firstborn. She didn't want him to have it. She wanted Jacob to have it. So she cooked. No, 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 no. It's not that she wanted Jacob to have it. God did. God revealed to her before the boys were born that it was the younger who should have it. Isaac knew better. Yet he was acting contrary to the word of God. She was acting in accordance with the word of God. Up this scheme for Jacob to pretend to be Esau 
even went to the extreme because Jacob, I mean, uh, Esau was a, a more hairy man and Jacob was smooth skinned. So they even went to the extreme of putting like goat's hair on his arms and on the, this part of his neck. So when his father felt him, he would think that it was Esau. Now, Isaac was, um, he was suspicious. He didn't, he, when, when Jacob came to him and he said, who are you? <laughs> I don't know if it was just discernment or what it was, but he, he kind of had a check. If you read the story, the reason why he had a check is because of the voice of Jacob. Notice she's not reading the text. Because she's not interested in making the points the texts make. She wants to make her own points. She wants to spin her own theology. She's not teaching biblical doctrine and theology here. And, uh, but he felt him. <laughs> and there's another whole message here. He felt him and he went by what he felt. Well, that can get us in a lot of trouble, can it? Well, I'm learning more and more the older I get to go by that discernment, even if it doesn't make any sense to my brain. That's God's way of letting you know something's up here and you need to be really careful. And boy, if there's any time that we need to be careful, it's in the world today because there is a boatload of deception going on out there. <coughs> Uh, yeah, a truckload, but I mean, there's a whole container ship full of deception out there today. And this message that you're hearing from Joyce Meyer is actually on the boat. Uh, I mean, unbelievable. I think you get the point. She's clueless about what the text says because she's too busy. She doesn't have enough time to actually read it out. And she's not interested in doing that anyway. She's already figured out what her message is going to be. She's using the text for her own purposes rather than the purposes for which God revealed them. That's the problem. Boatload of deception indeed. And she's piloting the boat. All right, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review on the movie BFG, How to Deal with the Giants in Your Life. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Liturgical art is a beautiful expression of Christ's great love for us. I'm Kelly Schumacher, founder of Ani's Day Arts, and I would like to help you learn about liturgical art and the beauty it portrays as you view it through paintings, drawings, sculptures, and altarpieces. I'm available to speak with your group. My website is anusdayarts.com, A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I-Arts.com. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Yeah, it's movie preaching season. Time to put the Bible away. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves movies. Nobody likes the Bible. I mean, you want to have somebody come to church. I can't think of a better time than during a, well, a time when you can guarantee they won't hear the Bible. Yeah, that'll help save your friends, won't it? Yeah, let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Summit Church, one of the suburbs in Houston, Texas. Ross Fiesel, the youth pastor, presiding. We will be listening to a sermon based upon the movie The BFG. Yeah, The BFG. And the subtitle of the sermon is How to Deal with the Giants in Your Life. Right. Yeah, that's right. Again, I can't think of a better time to bring your friends to church than when they won't hear the Word of God. Yeah, that's that's a great time to bring them. And that's really what it is you're going to hear Ross talk about and say. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Ross Fiesel and his sermon on the movie, The BFG. Here we go. Series that we do. Um, By the way, if this is your first week here at the summit, I just want to say welcome. I'm so glad uh, that you're here and that you're here for this series. God on Film is our summer series that we do every single year. And we do it because uh, we love movies. I love movies. I personally, I absolutely love... We do it because we love movies. Yeah, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. I like movies too, especially particular ones. But I would never dare to preach on a movie when God's word so explicitly says that my job as a pastor is to preach the word of God. Love movies. I love everything about it. I love the industry. I love the background. I love the experience of going to a super dark, super loud room and just be bombarded with special effects and the smell of popcorn. It's amazing. 
I love movies. I always have. I, I even went to school for a little while to try and get into movies, but God had a different plan for me. And so what we realize, though, is that movies, as great as they are, are not great teachers. They bring up some really great stuff. They point out some really cool themes, but they don't always teach the right thing. In fact, a lot of times movies will bring up really good questions. Then why preach on them when the job of a pastor is to preach the word? That the Bible has the answer to and that God has the answer to. And so every single summer what we do is we take the blockbuster. If the Bible has the answers, the right ones, why don't you just skip the movies and just preach what the Bible says? Films that are coming out and we look at the questions that they propose, the themes that they put out there, and we turn to the Bible and we say, what does God say about this? And so we are going to be doing this for the next four weeks throughout July to cap off our summit summer. And so I hope that y'all will enjoy it, uh, and I hope that you use it. This is a great tool and a great opportunity to be able to invite someone to church that might not normally come, because everyone likes movies. Secret life. Yeah, no one likes the Bible. Invite your friends when we, 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 you can guarantee they won't actually hear the Bible. Life of Pets, which is next week, looks hilarious. Invite someone to go see it. Yeah, Secret Life of Pets. I mean, oh, man, can you imagine the, how great that sermon's going to be? Uh, I mean, it'll be practically Bible-free, you know? And then invite them to come see what the Bible has to say about that movie next week because it's going to be super great. So I'm going to be kidding. The Bible doesn't say anything about the movie The Secret Life of Pets. There isn't a single passage of scripture about it. Kicking it off this week with the big friendly giant, the BFG. And as with every week, I'm going to try and stay away from spoilers. I won't tell you who dies. Everyone. No, I'm joking. Not no one. No one died in this movie. I think. Um, the BFG, I won't talk about any of the stuff that comes in the latter half of the movie, but your disclaimer, if you didn't want to know that a giant ate a snozcumber, I will spoil that for you. Please don't send me an angry email. There will be mild spoilers throughout this series. So the BFG is a movie based on a book written by Roald Dahl. Uh, it's the same author that wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda, if you've seen those movies. And I grew up reading these books. I grew up reading Roald Dahl's books, and I loved them. I had them all. They were uh, so imaginative, and they were so much fun to read as a kid. And so when I heard they were making a movie, I got really excited because the only one I had to go off of was the 1989 cartoon, which was really bad. And so I was really excited for this movie to come out, and it was actually pretty on the money as far as book adaptations go. Uh, the book, The movie is about a young orphan named Sophie, who y'all saw in the clip, she was the little one, if that helps you, uh, who she essentially gets kidnapped by a giant and taken to giant country, where giants are typically known for eating people. Here are a couple of names of the giants. Uh, flesh lump eater, bone cruncher, gizzard guller, gulper, and child chewer. Not very subtle, these giants. And she begins to learn that the particular giant that took her actually isn't very violent at all. In fact, he's quite friendly. And so they begin to develop a relationship and they go on all these wacky adventures and they go and they catch dreams and they have breakfast with the Queen of England. And it's a, it's a blast of a movie, but the heart of it comes from the relationship between Sophie and the BFG. 
slowly learning about each other and learning to accept each other. Because at the beginning of the movie, you have two very, very different characters that immediately assumed everything they needed to know about the other one. You have Sophie, who saw a 10-foot-tall giant walking down the streets of London and immediately assumes, that thing's going to eat me. I'm dead. It saw me. It's kidnapping. I'm gone. It's a giant. It's evil. And then she, you even learn that she assumed things about herself being an orphan, that she was unwanted, that she was unloved. She, you even heard her in the, in, the, in the clip, I'm just an untrustworthy child. She had even judged herself a certain Oh, no, she's engaging in negative self-talk. Certain way. And what I love about this movie is over the course of it, you begin to see these characters as they begin to learn about each other, as they begin to fill in the stories of each other's lives, they begin to learn how to accept each other. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, learning how to accept each other? Huh? How do we deal with giants in our life? I'm not talking Yeah, I don't know any giants. Never met one. I'm not talking about Shaquille O'Neal. If he walked in here, he would be a giant in this room. I'm not talking about how would we deal with him. I want to talk about the people in, we, in our life that because of stories that we've heard or because they're just different from us or they wear different clothes from us or they act different from us, we have created an assumption around this person. We don't need to know anymore. I just need to know to stay away. How do we deal with giants in our life that we have judged perhaps unfairly? Okay, so a giant is somebody you've you've unfairly judged. Uh-huh. Because they were just different, and instead of getting to know them and hear their story, we generalize them and we move on. We've decided we need to have, we know everything we need to know about that person and we keep our distance. I want you to think about who these people could be in your life. This could be people that you work with. It could be people that you grew up with that you have just forever avoided because you think you know everything you need to know about that person. So my, the title. So this is very ambiguous. Got it. Title of my message today, if you're taking notes, is very simply this the BFG, how to deal with. With giants. And we're going to take a look at what God has to say about how to deal with giants and how to stop judging others. And so let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to gather together and worship you. Father, I pray that just like we sang this morning, that you have your way. You have your way with me, you have your way with everyone that is sitting in this room, you have your way with this service. Father, we want nothing else but you this morning. And so, Father, I just pray that you teach us. I pray that you open our ears, that you soften our hearts to be able to hear your word. Father, I pray that you begin to bring people to mind as we talk, God, people that we have not heard their whole story. And, Father, I pray that you fill us with the compassion of Christ as we walk out of here this morning. And, Father, I just pray for myself. I pray that it be your word spoken, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to be God's word, you're actually going to have to preach the word in context, properly exegeted. Mm-hmm. Amen. 
All right, so I'm going to give you three very simple points today on how to deal with giants in your life. Number one, learn their story. I want to do a quick exercise with you. I have brought the actual book of the BFG, and I want to... You have the book. ...to read it to you. So get comfortable. we got about 100 pages to go, so here we go. And I'm a youth pastor, so this might get silly. Bear with me. All right. The BFG looked at Sophie and smiled, showing about 20 of his square white teeth. Yesterday, he said, we is, was not believing in giants, was we? Today, we is not believing in snozcumbers. Just because we happen to not have actually seen something with our own two little winkles, we think it is not existing. What about, for existence, the great squizzly scotchhopper? I beg your pardon? Sophie asked. And the humple crimp? What's that? Sophie said. And the rap rascal. How much do you want to bet he doesn't read this much scripture in this sermon? The what? Sophie said. And the crumpscottle? Are they animals? Sophie asked. These common animals, said the BFG contemptuously. I is not a very know-all giant myself, but it seems... Quick question. How's the book? Did you like the book? How'd you like the ending? What about the beginning? Is it, is it good? These are questions that are impossible to answer when we've only heard one paragraph. Right. And I hope you apply this principle to the Bible because I'm pretty sure it's almost next to impossible to actually know what the Bible says and teaches by ripping singular verses and tiny little passages out of context and weaving together some kind of tapestry or theology that way. In fact, these are questions that are impossible to answer if we've only heard one chapter. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I know nothing about the book or the movie BFG, and the, it's this is too small of a sampling for me to make an adequate assessment. Same as with the Bible, when all you hear are just select verses words or partial sentences taken out of context. We continue. But yet, this is kind of what we do to people. We take a small snippet of their larger story and we base everything we feel we need to know off the very little that we have actually experienced. Whether it's the Debbie Downer in your office that frustrates you or the person who sat behind you in class and chewed with their mouth open. There are people in our life that we have written off because we've barely read one page of their life and then filled in the rest ourselves. And what this is called. The the Debbie Downer and the guy who chewed his pencil. What are you talking about? Called is judgment. And judging is very dangerous as the Bible tells us. In Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Yeah, actually, Scripture, Jesus himself says to make a correct judgment. The uh, judgment talking about there in the Sermon on the Mount is a hypocritical judging. In the same way you judge, others will judge you. Here's the thing about a judge. One, they have to be appointed. And two, before they make a judgment, they have to have all the facts to be a good judge. The Bible tells us who's appointed as judge. It's not me. It's him. 
And God is the only person who has all the facts on every given person to be able to make any judgment. But it warns us in Matthew 7 that if we judge, then we too will be judged. I want you to imagine if someone got the book of your life and they just opened it up to a random page, how sure are you that it would be a good one? What if they opened up to your college years? What if they opened up to right after the worst breakup that you ever went through? What if they woke up to this morning as you rushed out of the house to get to church? Yeah, Jesus, John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with a right judgment. Yeah, so Jesus is commanding that we rightly judge. What would the judgment be? I remember uh, I found out an old coworker of mine, I had heard that he had described me as quiet, irritable, and keeps to themselves, uh, which I, I heard a couple chuckles, which I love because many of you know, quiet is not a word I get a lot. How about unfaithful to your duties as a pastor to preach the word? So let me give you the twist here. I worked with this guy once a week for two months for an hour and a half at 4.30 in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I'm definitely not a 4.30 in the morning person. We unloaded a truck together. And when I had heard that this is how he perceived me, it made me sad. Because I wish he'd gotten to know me a little bit more. I wish he heard the rest of my story before judging who I was. And so I want to encourage you this morning, learn someone's story. As many people as you can. People are interesting. God has given all of us such interesting lives. And our lives become enriched when we begin to find out more about other people and about more of his creations. And so here's a couple things to remember about learning someone else's story. Everyone's story begins exactly the same. Psalm 139, 13, and 14 says this. Here's the beginning of every single person's story. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your worksmanship is marvelous how well I know it. In Ephesians 2.10, he even refers to us as his masterpiece. Yeah, but Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 tell us the rest of the story. Although we are fearfully and wonderfully made, this is most certainly true. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work, it work in the sons of dis- disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, there's more to the story. We're all born Sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. Fearfully and wonderfully made, yes. Fallen because of sin, yes. I just want to bring up something because that's a very encouraging verse. Oh, and by the way, Ephesians 2.10 does not say that all human beings are God's workmanship. No, 
We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10 is not referring to every human being. It is specifically referring to Christians. And I love to read that verse, and I love to think about me. God, thank you for piecing me together. Thank you. Yeah, aren't you amazing? Aren't you wonderful? Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Thank you for calling me your masterpiece. But what's crazy about this this verse is it applies to literally every single person who has ever existed on the face of the planet. No, Ephesians 2.10 only refers to Christians. Read it in context. You're not doing it. Everybody. The person that you can't stand the most, God pieced them together delicately in their mother's womb, wonderfully. Yeah, again, Ephesians 2 is not talking about creation in that sense. Ephesians 2.10, no, it begins, we were all dead in trespasses and sins, chapter 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us up with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, referring to Christians, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so he's not telling the people there the truth. Ephesians 2.10 is not about all human beings. It's about Christians. Purposefully, carefully, perfectly. People in other countries people that have lived before us, people that have lived after us. This is true for every single person. God has made them purposefully, carefully, wonderfully, perfectly. He never made a mistake when he created anybody, not a single one. And so that's how every story begins. That's a good beginning. Um, so everybody was created perfectly and wonderfully. That would mean that they're sinless, you seem to be ignoring Genesis 3 and the aftermath of that. Every single person started out wonderful, perfect, and they were created that way. No, every human being since Adam and Eve is born dead in trespasses and sins and is by nature an object of God's wrath. And inside of every single person still resides that being that God created. I wanted to try and here's the thing. I'm a terrible artist. Yeah, there's no text that teaches that at all. You're denying the biblical doctrine of original sin. But I wanted to try and draw you something and it just kept turning out real bad. But I wanted to try and draw you a silhouette of a person. If you can imagine silhouette of me, but then inside of me would be the person that God created. This little boy, probably joyous, perfect, wonderful, immaculately created. And then surrounding this image of God's creation becomes walls, becomes layers. The years of our life, the trials that we've gone through, the calluses that we have obtained and the walls that we have put up as we have begun to adapt to life until you get to this. 
And that's all of us. We started out a certain way, but then we began to build upon it. And sometimes that's not bad. Sometimes that's great. And sometimes it's not. Uh, I just got done reading an incredible book called Unashamed, written by uh, Lecrae. If you don't know who Lecrae is, he's an extremely popular Christian hip-hop artist. He uh, has gotten nominated for, this is incredible to me, Artist of the Year at the Dove Awards for the past four years, and he's won it once. And he is the very first hip-hop artist to win Best Gospel Album at the Grammys, which is incredible. And he wrote a book about his early years. He has a great message and he has a great heart of God, a heart for God. But in his book, he talks about being a teenager and he talks about getting involved in gang activity and he talks about sexual immorality just running rampant in his life. And as he, if you just read that chapter, if you just saw that little piece of his life, can you imagine if you just ran into him at the grocery store or if you heard that he was living next door? the assumptions that you would begin to think. You'd probably put them in a certain category. But he begins to go on and explain that that's not the only part of the story. He also talks about an absent father and an abusive stepfather and a mom that trying her hardest is trying to make... All of this is the result and the fruit of our collective sin as humanity, fallen, sinful Creatures. You're not describing a perfect and pristine world full of people who are perfectly God's masterpieces. You're describing, well, people who are fearfully and wonderfully made and born dead in trespasses and sins. Everything fit and everything work out and him wanting to find acceptance from any kind of fatherly figure, including an uncle who was involved in gangs. And he wanted to find comfort from anyone, including if it was just physical. And as you begin to hear more of his story, it begins to paint a different picture than just a punk kid causing trouble just because. And every single giant in our life, they have more of a story behind what you're just seeing. Behind most trouble, there is a story. If only we would take the time to hear it. Um, Scripture makes it very clear. We all suffer from the same problem. We're all equal when it comes to being sinful, dead, and in need of a savior. If we are to treat people with the same compassion, love, and mercy that God would treat them with, this is what we have to do. Because God has a very particular advantage on us. He has seen everything. He knows what they've been through. He knows their past. He knows their hurts in the same way that he has seen everything that you have gone through. Um, It's more than that. Christ has actually become one of us, and God has laid on Christ all of our sins. He's bled and died for these sins. And he knows your pain, and he knows your hurts, which is why God, in his mercy, has not judged you. Uh, No, God, in his mercy, laid all of our sins on Christ and judged him. Yeah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Yeah, that's what's going on there. And so we need to do the same. We should try and do this as well. And it's as simple as, here's the hardest part, is asking someone to have a conversation. 
asking them to lunch or coffee. I know that can be worrisome because what if they say no? Then offer to buy. Uh, yeah, um, I'm sure having a coffee with somebody is a good idea. Hopefully you'll tell them about their crucified and risen Savior. Tell them that you're a sinner just like they are and that Christ has bled and died for their sins and is calling them to repent and to be forgiven. It helps. And then ask them about themselves. Just to learn. No ulterior motive, but just to learn about another person. And that is compassion. And that compassion helps us to break through the walls that they have put up to see the person that God originally created. Uh, We won't see that person in me or them really in its true fullness, in the truest sense, until, well, the resurrection of the dead. See glimpses of it in this life in the regenerate, in Christians, but not in a pagan, not in an unbeliever. Because guess what? Their story is not over yet. And that brings me to point number two. Point number one, learn their story. Point number two, imagine their potential. One of the best ways to help you deal with the giants of your life is not to just see them for who they are now, but to possibly see them for who they could be. God does this time and time again throughout the Bible. He doesn't see people the way that others do. He sees so much more than what meets the eye. And Yeah, no, dead in trespasses and sins is dead in trespasses and sins. The gospel is not about at all God seeing human potential. It's about God bleeding and dying and redeeming and making alive dead, sinful humanity. What are you talking about? In the book of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel is sent to find a new king. And he goes to David's parent. And David's parent brings out all of David's other brothers. And none of them quite match up. None of them stir his heart. And he goes, do you have anyone else? And David's father replies with, yeah. Notice he's not actually reading the text from 1 Samuel 16. I have one more, our youngest, but he's out there in the field with the sheep. And Samuel goes, okay, call him out. And so they call David over. David, number eight, son number eight, the youngest, the one that was put out in the field, the lowly shepherd boy. And as soon as he walked up, Something stirred inside Samuel, and it says that the Lord told him, this is the one. Because God didn't see a shepherd boy. He saw someone that would, at one point in time, be a fearless king modeled after his own heart. Uh, No, no, no. The text doesn't say any of the things you're saying. You're literally making that up and then sticking it into the text. He didn't see who he was now. He saw all the potential of who he would and who he could be down the road. In the book of John, several Pharisees try and bring a woman before Jesus and stone her for committing adultery. And Jesus looked at her and he didn't see a sinner, but he saw a daughter with an opportunity to be saved. And instead, just like it told us in Matthew, he turned the tables because they were judging her They were then to be judged. And he asked them very simply, 
you who has not sinned, cast the first stone. Again, you're like totally engaging in what's called eisegesis. You're reading your theology into these texts. Your theology is not in these texts. And they all walked away. And in the book of Luke, Jesus is walking through the town of Jericho when a tiny man by the name of Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and hated by most people because he took their money. Yeah, that's right. He did. He was a complete slime ball, and he repented, and he was forgiven. It's in nowhere in the text of the story of Zacchaeus does it talk about how Jesus saw the potential he had. The good reason. Now, generally, when someone is making a scene, when someone's climbing in a tree and hanging out to be able to just see someone, most of us uh, will do two things. Either one, we'll avert our eyes, or two, we'll pull out our phones and film it for Instagram. But Jesus did something different. In Luke 9, starting in verse 5, it says this, When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. And he was that, but he was a notorious sinner who was forgiven. He was penitent. Christ forgave him. They grumbled. Even though he was a small man, he's a giant in the eyes of many. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Right. Zacchaeus was lost and he was found by Jesus. He was a sinner who was brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, and he was bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. This isn't about human potential or that Jesus saw the potential in him. No, it's that Jesus forgave him. Most people didn't know Zacchaeus as a man. They just knew him as a title, tax collector, and that told them all they needed to know. So they hated him. They refer to him as notorious sinner, as if that didn't apply to all of us. But Jesus looked at this notorious sinner, saw all of his story leading up to now, and the potential for so much more in his future, and he didn't see a cheat. No text ever talks about Jesus seeing the potential in his future. But he saw an opportunity, he saw a potential for redemption. God doesn't just look at a page or a percentage of your story. He sees all of it front to back. Yeah, that's basically saying that the reason why Jesus saves you is because there's something really good about you. And so Jesus saves you because of your merits, your goodness, and your goodness in the future. This is all about Jesus looking across humanity and saying, oh man, that guy has potential. There's something really in him I really like. No. That's not what Scripture teaches. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. Objects of God's wrath, Christ in his mercy forgives us 
when we are dead. God demonstrates his love for us, Romans says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. No text ever talks about, oh, the reason why Jesus saves people is because he sees their potential. And while we don't have the ability to see everything the way that God does, we can go to him in prayer and ask for him to reveal things to us, to reveal potential in people that we would normally not be able to see. And I am so thankful that I have had mentors in my life that have done this, that have taken the time to pray to God and for God to reveal something in them that most people couldn't see to be able to take a disorganized kid that ran from responsibility and to be able to form him and to be able to see potential in him that not even I could see. And that's why my job is so cool because I get to see so much potential in all of our students and I get to see so much potential in our church. Because God has revealed these things to me. And like it says in the word of Philippians chapter one, verse six, it says this, I am certain That God who began the good work within you, we talked about that, the beginning of the story, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day that Christ Jesus returns. And this includes yourself. God's still working on you. He's still working on me. And I know that we all hope, we all bank on God seeing our potential to bring us out Sorry, to bring us up out of where we currently are. No, I'm not banking on God's on him seeing potential in me. I'm banking on Christ's mercy and that alone. Or to bring us out of where we had been. God had to see something in us that no one else could. No, we're dead in trespasses and sins. It's not because of us. There's something good in us that God saves us. We were objects of his wrath. Christ saves us purely out of his love, his compassion, his mercy. Last week, Pastor brought up uh, the story of, of, of Abraham talking to, to God and saying, what if there's 40 people? What if there's 30 people? What if there's just some potential Abraham wanted to see? And that should be us at the, at the drop of a hat, being able to, say, to look and be able to plead and say, God, is there potential? If so, show it to me. Yeah, again, you're inserting potential into the text. It's not there. I want to see it. I want to imagine it. I see the way they are now, but I want to see where you have them destined to go. And you know what? I want to help them get there. Ephesians 3.20, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. If we need for God to do this so badly in our lives, to do infinitely more, why wouldn't we do that for others? So to deal with giants in our life, we got to learn their story. We have to imagine their potential. And number three, we have to see them through Christ. We have to see them through Christ because this is the way that God sees us, through Jesus, through his blood and through the lens of everything that Christ has done for us. Amazingly, God does not see us as dirty. He doesn't see our sin. Yeah, this is true. It's because of what Christ has done for us that he doesn't see our sin. What the gospel, the gospel you're preaching right now contradicts your other point. Instead, 
When he looks at us, he sees something that we could never obtain on our own. Righteousness. Right. You just said it. We can never obtain it on our own. So it's not about the potential God sees in us, is it? He just contradicted himself. Which is amazing. And this goes for you. This goes for the person next to you. And this goes for all the giants in your life. God died for them too. The person that you're having trouble tolerating, Jesus looked at them, looked at all of them, and decided that that person was worth dying for. And so how should we consider them? How should we think about them? If we want to see people as the sons and daughters of God, as brothers and, uh, and sisters of Christ, to see them as God sees them, we have to remember that this verse stands equally true for them as it does for us. Hebrews 10, 14. For by the one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Right. Again, the gospel you're preaching, which I'm happy is making an appearance, is literally contradicting your previous points. If we need to be made perfect, then it's not about us having potential. It's about God's mercy. See, Jesus did this incredible thing when he went on the cross. He offered an incredible exchange to you and to every single other person who has ever existed. He said, hey, that, all that junk, all that mess that you have, I want to trade you for it. I'll take that and tell you what, you take righteousness. So notice he's even talking about substitution. If we have all this potential in us, why do we need a substitute? And I'm going to take this and I'm going to take it to the cross. And I'm going to deposit it there and you hold on to my righteousness. And so every single time that God looks at you, instead of seeing this, he's going to see me. And that is amazing. That is amazing. We never deserve that deal. Yet he offered it to us. And he offered it to all the giants in our life. And so we should pray that God gives us Jesus' lens to be able to see righteousness in other people. So here's what I want you to do this week. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and close up with this. The next time that you see a giant in your life, I want you to look at them and I want you to tell yourself, God loves them so much that he gave up his son for them. Jesus loves them so much that he gave up his life for them. Well, I love... And that's true, but it's not because of their potential. It's because of his love and his mercy. ...them enough to not judge them to accept them for who they are and to learn a little bit more about them. That's going to be my challenge to you this week. And I want you to begin to think about who that person could be. Heck, it could be a family member. Because we could all stand to learn a little bit more about each other because this is the coolest thing that happens when we learn to accept each other. Did you know that when we accept one another that it brings glory to God? That's not just for me and you. Yeah, assertions without biblical texts. Uh, cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God's doing something that he ain't doing here. 
That's not just props to me. That's not just going to be a pat on my back. When you accept someone else for who they are, it brings glory to God. Romans. No, we're called to call people to repentance of their sins and to be forgiven. Big difference. Romans five, or sorry, Romans fifteen, verse five. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for the followers of Christ. Yeah, again, the context there in Romans is Christians in their relations with other Christians. Check this out. Then all of you can join together in one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We accept others because Christ accepted us all when we didn't deserve it. And when we accept others with the goal of bringing glory to God, it does exactly that. Because we didn't love them with a humanly love. Because humanly love has a limit. And it has a preference. We love to love the people who love us back. We love to love the people who make it easy. But godly love. To not treat them with a flesh reaction, but to treat them the way that God would. That brings glory to him. That brings glory to him because now you are being the church. Because now you are being God's heart on this earth. Loving the way he would love. Judging the way that he wouldn't. And accepting everyone for where they're at, their whole story, not just the page they're on right now. And so I want to pray with you. And I want to pray that God begin to reveal giants in your life. And I want to pray that he gives you the strength to be able to do something a little uncomfortable this week. Yeah, again, this wasn't a biblical teaching. This was nonsense. And the, all of the nonsense was caused by the fact that he started with a movie rather than the Bible. And begin to learn their story. To begin to imagine their potential. To begin to imagine the person that God created them to be. And then, to love them the way God would. To see them the way God does. As a brother, as a sister. If they're a pagan, I can't see them that way. They need to be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins before that happens. That's a daughter and a son of God. So let's pray. Father, I... Done, done. Wow, what a mess. So you get the point. I mean, I'm glad that the gospel kind of got brought in, but then again, it was, really wasn't a clear preaching of the gospel. And, uh, you know, it was just all over the map. And the reason for it's quite simple. He wasn't actually preaching a biblical text. He was preaching his own theology and then somehow figured out a way to shoehorn the gospel into his message. Three points. Learn their story. Imagine their potential. Who? The giants. Uh-huh, Right. There, where's this giant theology taught? Well, it's not. But people like movies. Uh-huh, right. And then we talk about seeing them through Christ. And he's applying Christ's death universally, regardless of whether or not the person is penitent and a believer in Christ or not. And that's a problem, too. Ah, big difference between objective and subjective justification. But that's for another episode of Fighting for the Faith. You get the point. Total train wreck and a, fl a flat-out denial of the doctrine of original sin, which is one of the reasons why this thing was such the mess that it was. 
What did you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.